0: to another Writers After Dark. We're here because good stories start with the writers. Since wherever there's a story, someone's either making it up or writing it down. And it is my pleasure today to to dive into a quartet known as the Khorasan Archives. The author is Asma Zahanat Khan, and she has built a world that is... For me, uh, a delight to experience. There's a, a richness to it that is so deep, so set in its warrior ways, its battles, its religious foundations, its conflicts, that it's it's almost a shame to read it too fast. <laughs> but I had to. <laughs> Asma, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> so first, let's tell everybody about the series. It's the Coruscant Archives. Uh, the first book is The Bloodprint. The second is The Black Khan. The third is The Blue Eye, which came out last year. And the most recent book, The Blade Bone. And... That's right. The
1: Bladebone Bone is at, on the 6th.
0: All right. So we will we will have these, everyone will be able to finally read the concluding volume about this intrepid band of women warriors who are in more than just a battle for their lives, but the soul of their land on some levels. And the talk about where this story came from for you because it is it is outside of the what most people have grown up with and gotten used to about fantasy fiction. It's you know it's a it's a kind of story I wish I'd had growing up. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Uh,
1: so for me, it really began with my own personal history, heritage, ethnicity, and culture. And one of the things that I love about fantasy is that you can always forge these new frontiers in it and bring new things to the table. So I've read a lot of fantasy all my life and, and growing up too. And I thought, you know, here's a world that I know really well, but I haven't seen in fantasy, but I would love to put on the page and draw from it. These cultures, I'd love to draw from their their myths and their legends and their traditions and try to fashion a story around that. So Ethnically, I'm a Pakistani Patan or Pashtun woman, and I wanted to tell a story about my own people, even though I don't use any of that terminology <laughs> in the series. Uh, but essentially, that's what Arian, the lead character, reflects, um, that she's a woman from a background like myself, and she's living in a time in this world of Coruscant, uh, under the dictates of this ruthless patriarchy governed by this mysterious sorcerer named the One-Eyed Preacher, and he's used the religious law of the land to enslave and oppress women and basically reduce their worth to nothing. But religious authority and religious power in this series and in this world are really invested in women. So Arian and her closest companion, Sinia, they both belong to this council of Hera. And these women are empowered with the oral magic of the claim. And they believe if they can find this sacred text called the blood print, they'll have at their disposal the tools that they need to bring down not only break down this one-eyed preacher, but also to reimagine the relationship between men and women in the world.
0: Now, how much of the the magic and the world building, the story setting, did you pull from the myths and legends you grew up with that were a part of your life, your culture, that spoke to you as you know a fan of fantasy?
1: I would say nearly all of it. Um, so the story, the story. If you look at the map, you'll see that it very closely represents the real world. Although all of these places have been renamed, and I'm sort of envisioning this world some thousand years in the future, after the old world has been destroyed by these wars of the far range, and and so you begin the story in what would be today Afghanistan, um, and then in the first book, The Bloodprint, these warrior women journey to. Uh, Uzbekistan and some of these great famous capitals of the civilization of Islam, such as Bukhara, which is called Black Aura in this series, or the fabled city of Samarkand, which is called Marakand in this series. And then in the second book, I move my cast into Iran. Um, and we talk about the Black Khan. He's the prince of Ashfall, which represents the capital of, it represents one of the old capitals of ancient Persia called Isfahan. Um, and then other places in this, in this series that I, I, I like to, whose history I like to canvas. Um, in the Blue Eye, we make a journey south a little bit to Ethiopia and then west to Mali and Mauritania. And in the final book, in The Blade Bone, um, the story begins in what would today be Jerusalem and then comes back to the world of Afghanistan and Iran. So, um, I mean, I, my family roots lie in Afghanistan, India and Pakistan. And so a lot of that, the, uh, the culture that I'm describing, the Patan or Pashtun culture, all of that was based on my my own upbringing, and the stories and the myths that I draw from really are from the history of the Islamic tradition. Some of the the stories about our divine revelation, how the early Muslim community was formed, uh, the battles and challenges they faced, and then the kinds of holy relics that they came to believe in and assigned value to. So many of those things find their way into the story. But then there's other things that are entirely original that I just brought in from imagination or from reading more widely about Silk Road Colors that I didn't know as well, such as um, Zaref Shah and his warriors and the Cloud Door. They're really based on the Mongols and the Mongol law of the Yasa. So a little bit from
0: everywhere. A truly global story. Awesome. (laughs) Now with, um, with what you've, uh, just described, uh, do you have like a reference or a bibliography that goes through the history and the, uh, I guess the, the historical progression over the centuries of where, you sourced some of this stuff just to give people uh, an, an extra reading list?
2: Hmm, that's a
1: great question. Uh, I don't know. I didn't have that in any of the books, although I do have a pretty comprehensive glossary, several maps, a cast of characters. But I was consciously trying to create a little bit of distance between the present world and the future world that I was imagining so that I would have uh, a little more freedom to do some kind of um, to explore these themes about oppression and subjugation and a hatred of difference um, to advocate for a culture of pluralism and um, a little more freedom and commentary and criticism. But really, if you look up, if you just Google terms, so there's thousands <laughs> of books about it. And so I've read so many of them and, you know, so much of it was just storytelling from my, the elders in my family too, or things that I grew up with as a child. So it's, it's really hard to quantify that. I think that reading list would be pretty comprehensive, um, but there's this one really great book that I love called the Golden Road of the Golden Road to Samarkand, and then of course there's that recent bestseller The Silk Roads by Peter Frankopan. So there's there's no shortage of material. One thing that I found uh, immensely helpful was reading some travel logs and travel guides, but not from the usual. Um, from or, or a lonely planet, but travel guides written about the region from people from the region or by people from the region because they always they prioritize different things in the storytelling and they emphasize different aspects of the culture much more differently than you see in Western travelogue. So that was also very helpful to me.
0: Now, those sound kind of cool. You, you oh, have I had a great time. People, I had a great
1: time researching this
0: theory. They people from the region giving travel tips to people from other regions who might travel there and you you and you you have a a a reference from a a local perspective that's really cool <laughs> it was yes it was yeah but uh yeah i i i asked about the the historical reference cuz i am a huge fan of history if i could have taken like Uh, Just two years of nothing but history classes in college, I think I would have just just history from different parts of the world fascinates me. And knowing that you pulled a lot of the world here in this story from historical stories and from family stories just warms my heart.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, I think if you if you love history as I do, I read a couple of Jack Weatherford's great books on the Mongols. So they're written more for the lay audience. And I hadn't I hadn't known that much about Mongol civilization before that. Although my dad always joked that we were descendants of <laughs> uh, Genghis Khan because of our last name. And I I think I saw a recent uh, an essay saying that one of eight men in Asia is a descendant of Genghis Khan. But my dad used to always joke about that we had this. Bloodthirsty nature because we we descended from them in some remote way, and I'm sure that every Khan claims that. But so I read some of the more historical, the, the the longer, the long ago sources. But more recently, I read these great Jeff Weatherford books about um, the Mongol Empire and Genghis Khan. That really helped with the bloodprint in particular.
0: Cool. So for you, what was the the most fun element to discover or? or to actually write about?
1: Uh, for me, I think it's probably um, the relationships in the story. I love to put characters into conflict and see how they can rile each other up and what the fallout from that is. And I also love it when um, when characters, you can't decide where the character actually stands. You can't immediately qualify someone like, or quantify someone like the Black Khan, for example. His name is Ruch. You can't decide if he's, you know, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he evil? Uh, Because he's, he's playing things close to his chest, and he will, he basically will advance his agenda, uh, no matter what it requires of him. So for a long time, you could be reading and thinking, okay, this, this is the person I'm going to root for in the story. And then suddenly Rook will do something, you'll be like, what? So I love, there's a lot of joy in confounding expectations. Um, And even though, even though you do as a writer want character consistency, it's always good to have those, untold depths or those little surprises that you can bring into the story. So for me, that was great fun. And the second thing I would say is I had a lot of fun with the magic, too. This idea that magic wasn't necessarily about a powerful weapon that you could hold in your hand, but it was just language, and that it was reserved mainly to women. That was incredibly freeing and fun for me. Yeah,
0: that That's a really interesting take on it because you see – from you know the life we live and the the world around us women have to navigate certain situations differently and most of the time they have to use their words to get through some of those situations be they positive challenging or otherwise and having the magic system the power that they channel come through the use of words was, uh, I thought, really freeing and interesting because like the women, something the women do gives power to the words, and it's not as simple as it sounds. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid certain <laughs> certain things here. but yeah, it's not as simple as it sounds, but it's still so compelling.
1: It's, it's not simple. And that's what I found interesting about it. Because I was, as a Muslim woman myself, I was writing about the power of the Islamic tradition, the things that believing Muslims hold dear or that they venerate. And of course, one of those things is the holy book of the Quran. And in Islamic cultures, a person who has memorized the entire Quran holds a very, um, revered place in a family, in a society, in a culture. And they're, they're considered, um, I, I don't know what happened. But one of the most esteemed members of that community, and they hold great respect. So I took that idea because I loved it. And in the Muslim world, you'll see there are these or um, on competitions where uh, young people compete at being the most excellent in this form of recitation. So I took that idea one step further, and I said, "Okay, yes, this has meaning to us as a religious community, as a society." Um, as, and it transcends all these different cultures and nations that make up the Muslim world. But what if I took that meaning one step further? And what if I gave it le- uh, power beyond the spoken word? And I was really interested. You'll see that one of the themes of the horizon archives is that I was examining um, the state of crisis and decline in some parts of the Muslim world today, in those places where ideology or religion is used very effectively as a tool of oppression. And typically, the targets of that oppression are women, but they're just as often minority communities in a majority society. Um, And so this oppression is justified in the name of religion. And I said, well, if women took back the reading of their faith, their history, tradition for themselves, there is no way that they would find anything oppressive in it. Quite the contrary. They would use it as a tool of liberation, as we've seen in so many societies um, around the world. And we know that most readings of, of all faiths are in patriarchy, and that typically women are erased historically and in the present from the religious tradition. So as a Muslim woman myself, who comes from a background, from an ethnic group that constitutes a force in society like the Taliban, which is anti-woman, anti-minority, anti-human rights, um, I thought that I really wanted to talk about putting our tradition in our own hands and how we would use that tradition, that history, and that religious scripture to empower ourselves Rather than, uh, you, rather than striking back with it for violence or, or exclusion. And in the process of doing that, I would be celebrating the beauty of the tradition that so many try to demonize and make ugly. So thematically, there was a lot going on in the Horace Archives beneath the surface of this what I hope was an exciting story of swords <laughs> and sorcery and magic and romance and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah, the... Uh... No matter how you wrap it up in historical fiction, in fantasy fiction, in science fiction, in horror, there is a, a level of destruction in stories about oppression, patriarchy, uh, authoritarianism, uh, just repression in general, where destruction of existing knowledge and suppression or denigration of education even ramping up to the point where you don't allow certain people to learn how to read and to write because if they can't they're never a threat to you and because mm-hmm. there's one one incident that was mentioned the destruction of a library and mm-hmm. those those things from a historical sense break my heart because you are literally changing history. You are erasing a part of history where people can look back and say, hey, we were able to stand on our own before this happened. What do we do to get that back? And mm-hmm. stories stories that don't sort of gloss over those instances or those uh, elements in the societies that our protagonists are living through or fighting with or against – is refreshing to me anyway i'm glad you think so i know i love that when i read other people's books too
1: i I love to see what they've made of their histories and cultures and how they speak back to erasure and how they deal with oppression one of the things that was um fun for me or interesting for me is to uh also kind of reconceptualize this idea of armed force so Mm -hmm. the 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 patriarchy in the series the talisman of course, they burn everything in sight. They destroy the written word wherever it exists, whether it's in libraries or scriptoria or on the sides of buildings. And it's a, it's a tragedy for a civilization of language, a civilization of the book, a civilization of the word. Uh, but wh- when I was thinking about, well, what about the communities that would fight back? Typically, um, when you're looking at novels that involve world building and themes of empire, Everyone's, in, everyone's out there for conquest. Everybody wants to conquer new territory and rule it. So when I dedicated some time in the Black Khan to this huge, incredibly proficient army called Zeyadan that protects the Black Khan's capital, but I conceived of them from start to finish as an army not of conquest, but of defense, that they would defend their own territory and not let any harm come to themselves and their highly superior civilization compared to other places in the book but they weren't intent on conquering anybody else's lands and they weren't interested in destruction purely for the sake of destruction. And I think it's not often that you see war or strength of arms conceived of in that way. So I just wanted to try to do something different because I saw a value in self-defense, but I don't see any value in, in aggression.
0: Yeah. Conquering, conquering, colonization, uh, genocide suppression in general those are those are things that our world right now are starting to acknowledge happened after so many years of ignoring it and it's uh yeah as a woman of color in america it can be a little stressful when you're trying to explain to people it's like no this has been going on my entire life I got Uh ridiculed at the age of six the first time because of the color of my skin I'm like really you didn't know this was going on we've been telling you this but now that we have camera phones people can see oh you weren't exaggerating but just just having having as you said the, this group was destroying words the written words and then the magic that the the was it the companions of Hera use mm-hmm. is word based magic i just i just thought that was a very interesting uh struggle an interesting element of the struggle that we're we're watching play out and that attention to detail, for me as a fantasy fan, is just lovely. Thank you.
1: Thank you. In The Blade Bone, uh, the companions, you know, they're, they're at this final cataclysmic point, because it's the conclusion of this four-book series, and they're fighting to the death to defend their citadel because it houses one of the last scriptoria in the land. So it's like this treasury of manuscripts, and they're willing to lay down their lives to preserve it because it connects them both to the past and promise is a legacy for the future. So so um that's one of the things is that's the drive, driving uh, driving themes or I guess uh the big chapters or sections of the playbook.
0: <laughs> mhm. I really don't want to go into spoiler territory, but I I do want to find out how long did it take you to come up with the the overall story, the overall world and what made it go to four books rather than the typical three? That's
1: a good question. Uh, When I first outlined it, I thought it would be three books as well. And I was planning to pitch it as a trilogy. But when my my agent asked me to, to do the outline more thoroughly, and I realized I knew the story that I wanted to tell. And then when I tried to allocate it or fit it in within the parameters of three books, I realized I had too much story. And I'd have to go uh, to the final book, The blade bone <laughs> if I wanted to take the characters on the entire journey that I wanted to take them on, and then spend time in those places and draw them um, and thematically explore those places as well. So um, I've been working on it specifically for at least the last five years. And then I would, you know, I spent a great deal of time outlining, the, doing the first overarching outline so that the story would flow continuously through to the end. Uh, but I would say that I've been reading and researching and living parts of the, the history and the culture all my life. I've been always really, really interested in the Islamic tradition and the history and the myths of the Islamic civilization. I've traveled extensively throughout the Muslim world. I've lived. Uh, I spent many of my childhood summers in Pakistan. So I've lived deeply entrenched in Patan or Pashtun culture, um, and all of that, you know, left an imprint on me. Uh, And so I always knew that I wanted to tell a story like this, but it was really um, inspired by my encounter with the manuscript that the blood print is based on. And this happened when I was traveling alone in the Middle East and I'd made a detour to Turkey and I was in Istanbul visiting Topkapi Palace. And I wandered into a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. It's always crowded with tourists. And I wandered into the Chamber of Holy Relics. And even though the whole palace and all of its tourist attractions were so crowded and so hot and so noisy, when you wander into this chamber, it was incredibly quiet and there was this hush over the room. And I was really curious as to why. And then I see in the center, under this um, glass case, there's this manuscript, old, ancient, uh, and the pages are open and people are looking down and there's this dried blood stain on it, like a dark, a muddy red or almost a copper color. Um, And it's a manuscript, this ancient manuscript, it claims to be, uh, it hasn't been historically verified, but it holds a lot of significance as a holy relic. It claims to be what's called the Osman Qur'an, and Osman was the third leader of the early Muslim community, and until he called for it to be written down and compiled, the Qur'an was only transmitted through oral recitation. So it's considered to be one of the, if it was an authentic Qur'an, which in this case I don't think it was it was considered to be one of the earliest written records of the Holy Book of Islam. And so everyone who went into that room fell silent in reverence in its presence, because the story of how Osman's blood came onto the manuscript is a tragic When He was reading it in the mosque, and he was assassinated. And so it's acquired this, this sacred history, this mythology around it. And I, and I felt that here I am, and people are reverent in the presence of the written word, and the circumstances in which this manuscript was produced. And that's a Core is this important feeling of mournfulness and wonder to be able to capture in a book. So it was always in the back of my mind that I want to reproduce that someday.
0: That is a reason I think more people, after pandemic anyway, need to travel Mm -hmm. and see some of these uh, ancient artifacts, these ancient sites because you're looking at something that has existed longer than anybody on the planet has been alive. And there's there's a profoundness to that the an awe-inspiring weight to that that you owe it to make sure that these things are around a hundred years from now so other people can get that same sense.
1: Mm-hmm. And And also what I like about it is that new stories are formed in the aftermath, that it lends itself to the imagination and new storytelling. So it would have had a particular significance in its day and has a different significance now. And sometime in the future, it might mean something else entirely. Mm -hmm. So I love that potential for imagination and creativity that's just even contained in the idea of the story.
0: And for your story, I I will applaud your editor and your agent because I think mostly anybody else would have just made each of the three books bigger instead of just splitting it off into (laughs) a fourth. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I've been very, very
1: fortunate in my wonderful agent Danielle, who saw this book, the first book in the absolute rawest possible stage she could see it and still thought it could be turned into something worthwhile. And then uh, my editor at Harper Voyager is David Pomerico, but I also work with my UK editors, Natasha Barden and Vicki Leach. And they're also amazingly skilled at what they do, so insightful. They can immediately tell when your manuscript is going, going wrong <laughs> and help you figure out how to tell the story that you want to tell. So their um, support and their wisdom has really helped make the series what it is.
0: So did it, was it easy to find people who were supportive of this story that was not typical of the, the, the types of fantasy stories that most people are used to? Ooh,
1: that's another good question. I
0: don't think it was
1: easy, because like all writers, I face my share of rejection and disinterest in the stories I'm telling. Um, but I I think it was a really good fit at Harper Voyager, because they, uh, they really nurture stories by authors of diverse backgrounds or from marginalized backgrounds, and they're proud of that, and they put their weight behind that. And that mattered a lot to me, and I think it mattered a lot for the success of my series, too. So, not easy, but I think it found I think it found the right home. I think the Horsestone Archives found the right home.:
0: Well, judging from the feedback uh, that a lot of readers and reviewers have been giving to the series since Book one, I'd say you, you know, everyone's done pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I thought, you know, I was
1: new to it because it was my first time writing fantasy when I embarked on the Horizon Archives, even though I have a, a crime series that I had been writing. So when I began, it, and the reason that I wrote it in this particular way with totally different names and not necessarily, uh, I'm sorry, and not necessarily a direct connection to the present is because I wasn't sure how a, a series like this would be received. So I wrote it in one way that you could read it just as a fantasy series on the surface without knowing anything about the parts of the world that it's rooted in or the cultures it's rooted in. And it would still read, I hope, as a a rousing fantasy adventure quest. But then I also wrote it with all the subtext for people like myself, for people who share my background or people who are interested in this part of the world or in history. Um, And they would be able to draw all of that out of the subtext. So looking back now, I'm realizing that maybe there wasn't a need to do that because there was much more openness than I suspected.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit because you are a well-established mystery author before this series came out and you said you you grew up reading fantasy but how did you jump into mystery and what was the the door or the the mental spark that said I'm going to write fantasy now? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, the thing is, I I've, ever since I was a kid, I read widely. I, crime fiction is my first love. And I, I to this day, I read really widely in that field because I love mysteries. I love puzzles. And fantasy, my earliest influences were people like Terry Brooks and the world of Shannara that I fell in love with, Lord of the Rings, of course, um, Marion Zimmer, Bradley, some of that. So, And everyone in my house was reading fantasy, although we were all reading different authors. Like, my sister loves The Wheel of Time and... Um, Pierce Anthony and, and so on and so um, I, I just wanted to, uh, to find a place where I could talk about uh, magic history and mythology and fantasy seemed like the perfect fit for that but I still also did particularly with the blood print construct it somewhat like a puzzle somewhat like a crime novel in that there's this thing that they're searching for and there's these clues that lead to it. And then there's, of course, the red herrings and the <laughs> you get taken off the straight path towards that thing. So sometimes I feel in terms of genre conventions, there's a lot of uh, compatibility between different genres. And I, I actually like to write everything. Else. I'm not really confined to any genre. I like to write short stories. I like to write poems. I like to write plays. Um, it's just that I was fortunate enough to get published first in crime fiction and then in fantasy.
0: Now, did uh, did your foray into crime fantasy, I mean, crime fiction first, come from your studies? Because you studied law. That's right. I have a
1: background in international human rights law. And to this day, my greatest passion is advocating for human rights for marginalized communities. Um, so I taught in that field for a while. I practiced immigration and refugee law. And then when I, when I wrote my crime series, I knew that I wanted to, it to have several points of distinction. The first point is that my detective is a Canadian Muslim of similar background to myself, a man of color, um, a Muslim man in a time of rampant Islamophobia. So that's very rare, if not, it did not exist at all in crime fiction. And I wanted him to investigate crimes connected to global human rights abuses. Um, that particularly affect Muslim communities around the world, and then to have his lens as a, as a marginalized minority detective on those crimes rather than the typical lens that you see interpreting those events for us, someone who has cultural and linguistic or religious affiliations or affinity um, with the communities that he was investigating and the crimes that he was trying to solve. Uh, so that work is all deeply rooted in my background in human rights, and you'll see that even in the, with the Horizon archives. It also has very deep human rights themes, because effectively, um, I was writing about the Taliban's treatment of, uh, of women in, in the areas that they govern, of women and girls, their ruthless subjugation of women, and their ruthless treatment of minority communities. So when I write about Wafa, the Hazara boy, I'm writing about Hazara communities in Afghanistan and how, they've, um, been, how, how much violence they suffered under the hands of the Taliban. And and bringing some of those same themes to light and just reimagining a different conclusion when women for once have power in their own hands and the power that they derive is from the same religious authority, a group like the Taliban would claim for themselves. So I never wanted to step outside of that and claim that you needed deliverance from outside forces. What I really wanted to say was that the the Islamic tradition, its history, its mythology, is a beautiful thing. And if you put it in the hands of women, it's entirely liberating and empowering, which is not a discourse you hear very often in the mainstream. And so that human rights work, is it's all sort of, there's that thread of continuity where you talk about human rights issues, you talk about Islamophobia, and you find these different ways to write about them uh, by putting them into the structure of what I hope is a compelling novel, regardless of the genre.
0: Well, I for one am happy these books are out there for people to explore uh it it really does fill a void that has long been there we have a long way to go to bring all stories to the surface but this series is a hell of a start (laughs) thank you thank you very much (laughs) and you're you you are going to continue going back and forth between writing mysteries and fantasy or thinking of exploring uh, horror or science fiction anytime soon? Uh, Not horror and science
1: fiction, but I I have written several short stories and I would like to write um, literary fiction, uh, but also stay grounded in in fantasy and crime fiction too. So, you know, whatever opportunities come my way, I'm eager to seize on them. But I am very keen to tell a story about, this moment in America and about our slide towards authoritarianism and fascism, and the ability of our neighbors to look at what they're doing to communities of color and minor- marginalized communities and to be completely fine with that. So, I really love to
0: write a, lit- a literary novel along those themes. You have my interest and my support. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> let's see, let's see where it goes from here. We'll see. We'll we'll catch up. Where where can people find you online to, I guess, uh, keep track of what you're writing next and uh, where they'll be able to find it. Talk to you about it.
1: Um, so uh, my website is asmazehanatkhann dot com. I'm on Twitter at asmazehanat. I'm on Instagram at Ava Khan books and I'm Facebook. Uh, with my full name again, Asma Zahatnab Khan. So I really interact with readers a lot in those spaces. I love to hear from readers, um, so I hope some of you will stop
0: by. Have you uh, interacted with any uh, other young Muslim girls who have found these stories and just been invigorated?
1: Yes. Yes, I'm really happy to tell you that these books are finding an audience there um, and that I interact with not just readers, but also other Muslim writers. And we talk about the things that we have in common and the stories that we're trying to tell. Um, and it, it's been really wonderful for me to hear from younger girls who are starting their own podcasts or going into journalism and who uh, find themselves represented or find a, a place of not just safety, but welcome and belonging in my books. And that's meant so much to me.
0: Yeah, there's another writer I just uh, discovered a few months ago. He's got several short stories out there. What, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Osman, Osman Malik. Uh, oh,
1: yes. Osman Malik's got a, a short story collection coming out called Midnight Doorways, Fables from Pakistan. Oh. It is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I, I had a chance to read them for the purpose of providing a blurb and... They are absolutely, uh, he's such an original writer. The prose is so fierce and so compelling. And it it verges on that border between fantasy and horror. And after I'd read the complete collection, I couldn't sleep work (laughs) for a week. I was so frightened. But But his writing is so beautiful. And the stories are grounded in a reality that I know so well, having spent those childhood summers in Pakistan, and my family is still deeply, deeply connected there. So for me, I felt this incredible sense of nostalgia, but also this just, frank admiration of his sheer skill, talent, and imaginations. So I'm very excited for that book to come out.
0: Yeah, I came across a story, a short story of his. Uh, Ellen Datlow put out a collection early this year, uh, Hollywood Horror Stories called Final Cuts. Mm-hmm. And the story mm-hmm. in there was like, okay, who is this guy and where can I find more of his stories?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he wrote. uh, He just recently wrote a take on the City of Brass Fables. I'm not sure if that's the one you mean or if you mean the one about the eucalyptus gin, because that story was gorgeous, gorgeous. And that's one of the great things about Twitter is that I read it, and then I reached out to him and I said, hey, who are you? What are you writing? I want to know more. (laughs) And he's so lovely. He was so personable and willing to speak right away about his work, so that
0: was nice. Awesome. No, that it wasn't that story. It was I'm I'm gonna have to go get the collection off the shelf and look at it again because I just remember going, Oh, what happened here? And (laughs) but I'm exactly
1: the same experience I had, yeah.
0: (laughs) I am I am so happy to be in a position to find stories from other cultures around the world that haven't been experienced here in America before, or not frequently, and just other writers who are as fascinated with the, the horrors and the, the joys of this wacky planet we're living on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Asma, thank you so much for sharing your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure to be here and to have the
1: chance to speak about the Blade Bow.
2: Hey there, Mer Lafferty, co-editor of Escape Pod here. And I just wanted to let you know, if you are listening to this podcast right now, then you probably would enjoy our very first print anthology, Escape Pod. Our 15th anniversary print anthology will feature a mix of stories, some of which have been on the site, some are reprints that may be new to you, and some are brand new stories from people like T. Kingfisher, Maurice Broadus, Greg Van Eekout, and our own Tina Connolly. I also contributed a story featuring the universe from my book Six Wakes. If you are in the UK, you can get your copy October 20th, and if you're in the US, you can get your copy on November 17th. But check it out. We're pretty proud of what we've done with this, just like we're pretty proud with what we've done with this entire podcast for the past 15 years.
0: I think that's the most fun part about doing this podcast, finding... Writers finding voices that are outside the usual purview of science fiction fantasy, and horror that I grew up with uh, if you compare the the depth of the stories that are available now to the depth of the stories that were available in the eighties, it's a big 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 leap i actually I may have told the story before actually, I think I have but i gave up on fantasy fiction in the late 80s early 90s because it it i was bored i the same stories over and over again from different authors you know that's different from from reading the same story again and again because you adore that story but i gave up on fantasy fiction until Matt Stover came out with Heroes Die in 1999 and that book rekindled my belief, my trust in everything that fantasy fiction could be. We just weren't <laughs> we just weren't getting the full picture as readers. And eventually I started looking Four different fantasy stories again. I reconnected with some older series that had put out new volumes that I just skipped over. And I continued exploring more space opera, more science fiction, more horror, of course. But the despair I felt when I had first given up fantasy fiction went away when I read Heroes Die. And I'm glad for it. You know, some 20 years later, there's a broader arena of fantasy fiction, even a broader definition of fantasy fiction than what was available when I was reading fantasy way back when. So I'm happy for that. I have not yet found a fantasy series that compels me to read it like I do one particular uh, science thriller series, science fiction thriller, space thriller. I'm not sure really what niche it belongs into. It is classified as science fiction, but in the mid-80s, Steve Perry wrote the Matador Trilogy. Uh, I think it's between 86 and 88 is when those books came out. The Man Who Never Missed, Matadora, and the Machiavelli Interface. I've owned those three books for 30, going on 40 years. Is that right? Yeah, over 35 years. And I have read that trilogy every year since 19... Eighty-seven, eighty-eight. when that last book came out. I make it a point to read that trilogy every year. That story speaks to me in a way I can't explain, not even after all this time. If I had the experience and the wherewithal and the resources, that would be the series I would want to make into a TV show. Somebody else has held the rights for it. But, if I were somebody with the production resources of Bruckheimer or DuVernay, that's the story I would try to get made. It sings to me. (laughs) Even more than Justice League Dark, which I really, really want to see on TV. Anyway. So I'm still looking for that fantasy series that speaks to me like the Matador series, something that I am compelled to read every year for the pure pleasure and indulgence of it. But what do you read over and over? What cultures do you want to see in your fiction? What, what stories bring you joy and warmth? Let me know feel free to call in, leave a message. The number is 602-635-6976 or shoot me an email, summer at com. You can listen to Writers After Dark through Apple Podcasts, through Stitcher, through Google Play Podcasts and Player FM. And if you're listening on Apple or Stitcher, please leave us a review. Let folks know that you are enjoying this podcast and maybe they should check it out for themselves. You can follow us on Twitter, right after dark. That's at W R I T E, after dark. And of course, there is the Creators and Creatives playlist over on YouTube. YouTube.com slash slice of sci fi. Look for the playlist with the interviews of different writers, comic book writers screenwriters, novelists, try to have a fair variety of storytellers and creators. It's a curated list. They aren't interviews that I myself have done, but ones that I have found interesting and entertaining. And of course, there's the website, writersafterdark.com. Come on by, leave your Impressions, your comments, your insights into the various interviews and reviews that we have done here. Start up that geeky conversation. I'll also indulge in a conversation over on Twitter. So if you are brave enough to venture into the dangerous waters that are Twitter, come on by. (laughs) You can help support. Writers After Dark, and the other podcasts and websites in the Slice of Sci-Fi universe by going over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Slice of Sci-Fi. All your donations go to help keep the podcasts, the media flowing, the websites online. So again, thank you all for supporting the efforts here. And if a monthly pledge is not in your purview at the moment, but you'd like to help support, you can use the PayPal link, paypal.me slash sci-fi summer. And folks who do sign up as patrons, you're eligible for perks. We have DVDs, Blu-rays, 4K discs, uh, advanced reader copies, finished copies of books that I don't have room for. I don't have room for all of the stuff, so I give it to my supporters and my listeners keep an eye out for contests keep an eye out for monthly winners and to all of you who are currently supporting my gratitude my thanks goes out to you again thank you the theme music here at writers after dark is provided by sylvan quest featuring shade on we have links to other collaborations of theirs on the website and that will do it for this episode Thank you for listening. See you next time. And remember, keep looking for your own stories.